We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. Beginning in verse 15, the Holy Scriptures read. That's not the right one. Jacob, you want to hit... It shows it at the top, but it didn't refresh it in the Scripture reading. That's very odd. I've never seen that glitch before. We'll give Jacob one second. He'll get it fixed for us. It should be Matthew 18, 15 through verse 20. <clears throat> so I'm going to pull it up here. All right. He's got it. Thank you, Jacob. All right. Verse 15, it reads, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we come before you today as your broken and very imperfect people. And yet you've called us to be holy, for you are holy. And we know, Father, that apart from your saving grace and the power of your Spirit at work in us, that is an impossible endeavor. And yet it is possible because of your great mighty power, which is at work in us, willing us to work. Father, this text calls us to do a very hard thing, a very, very unpopular thing especially in our culture. So, Lord, we ask that we would allow this text to speak, not to each other's hearts, but to our own hearts. Help us not to use this text to analyze one another, but to analyze ourselves, because that is where it always begins. Help us to pull the log out of our eyes so we can see clearly to pull the speck out of each other's, and help us to do so in humility and grace. Father, we thank you for the wonderful celebration of life we had yesterday for Jeanette, our dear sister in Christ, who is now before your throne. And Father, we thank you for just all the hands that came together to make the funeral happen. But mostly, we thank you for the gospel being proclaimed to those who are in darkness. And we ask, Lord, that you would work mightily through the proclaimed word, through the foolishness of preaching. And we'll praise you for it. Father, we pray for our church. Help us to realize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the unseen rulers in the heavenly places. And so, Father, help us to be strong and courageous. Help us not to walk in the flesh, but in your spirit, according to your word. And so, Lord, we ask what we always ask. Continue to bring those to us who would make us strong. Keep those from our church who would cause division, who would be stumbling blocks, to the mission that you've given us, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us not to be stumbling blocks ourselves and help us to avoid stumbling blocks and help each other avoid stumbling blocks as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. From the window of their apartment, they all heard. They all saw. And yet nobody did a single thing about it. In the early hours of March 13th, 1964, Kitty Genovese was on her way home from work when she was approached by a man with a knife who intended to mug her. And though she yelled and tried to get away, the man attacked her with his knife before one neighbor then called out from his window, let that girl alone, causing the attacker to flee. The man ran away and Kitty slowly made her way towards the rear entrance of the building, seriously injured and hurt. The witnesses saw the attacker enter his car and drive away. However, 10 minutes later, they also saw him return in the car to continue his attack upon Katie Genovese. And yet during this time, which spanned roughly 30 minutes, no one did a single thing to help her out. And why not? Were they uncaring? Did they just, were they indifferent to the situation? Well, actually, no. What psychologists have determined, it's because of something called the bystander effect. And two weeks later, after the murder, the New York Times published an article explaining how it was possible that 38 witnesses who saw and heard the attack did absolutely nothing to step in and help this woman. And why not? Because they all assumed that somebody else would do it. They all thought that somebody else would step in, and yet no one did, leading to this woman's terrible, untimely fate. The story of Kitty Kitty Genovese is a tragic tale, and though there are some debated details about her death, however, there's no question about it. Ultimately, the bystander effect is absolutely real, and we have numerous examples of this sort of thing happening. It's a very real phenomenon in which the person feels highly discouraged from stepping in and helping a victim if there's other people standing around nearby. And so the way this works is that the more people there are present, the less likely a person is to step in and help. And this is because each witness experiences what psychologists call a diffusion of responsibility. This happens when a person believes that somebody else will step in and act, which then leads them to passively sitting by and do nothing at all. And I think all of us can relate to this because this is precisely why we often continue down a busy highway when we see that vehicle stranded on the side of the road. We all assume somebody else is going to step in and help. At the same time, if we're on an old you know, dirt road out in the middle of nowhere, if we see somebody, we're much more inclined to stop and help. And this is because of the bystander effect. Church, do you realize that one of the biggest problems we face as a church is a result of this thing called the bystander effect. It certainly is. Not just when it comes to broken down cars, not just when it comes to helping people who are being robbed and attacked, but when it comes to sin, destroying the lives of those that we are called and commanded to love, serve, and protect. And so in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us the antidote to the bystander effect, and it's actually quite simple, right? You don't have to write this down. It's pretty straightforward. Here's what it is. Don't be a bystander. All right, let's pray and go home. Just kidding. Don't be a bystander. Don't assume somebody else is going to step in and do the job that you are responsible to do. Sure, they're responsible, but you are as well. We are all responsible to step in and help when we see somebody in pain or suffering. 
The truth is every single one of us is called to step in, and it's because we are called to be rescuers, not bystanders. And so if we are going to be rescuers, if we're going to be kingdom rescuers, we might say, and not bystanders, we must do three things. We must go, we must persist, and third, we must protect. The past couple of weeks throughout the book of Matthew, uh, well, chapter 18 of the book of Matthew, we've seen what the greatness of the kingdom looks like. And what does it look like? Small child. Jesus sat a very young, small child in his lap and said, those who enter the kingdom must be like this. And what was his point? His point was, you must be as humble as a child. Right? That's the illustration he's using. And what kind of humility? It's this childlike humility that is totally upside down. See, in the kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. That's not how it works in our world, is it? No, it's a, it's a competition trying to get ahead of everyone else to show that we are greater than them. How? Through our accomplishments. But the kingdom is completely different. For in the kingdom, the way up is down and the way down is up. And so after establishing that kingdom citizens must have childlike humility, Jesus goes on then to warn about stumbling blocks for these children. And he tells us not only to watch out for stumbling blocks, but also to point out stumbling blocks before each other. And we talked about this. See, if I'm running a race and we're running one together uh, and we're on the same team and I see a stumbling block and you're 10 feet behind me and I don't call it out to you, that's not a very nice thing to do, is it? And so, no, we're supposed to call out these stumbling blocks. And as Jesus told us, for those who continue to cause the children of God to stumble, he gives a very dire warning saying that one day it would have been better for a giant millstone to have been hung around their neck and then be drowned in the depths of the sea than it would be for them to be a stumbling block for God's little children. And the illustration Jesus gives then for this, um, this, for this removing stumbling blocks in the way of these little sheep, uh, he gave us the parable of the lost sheep, right? Where the man leaves the 99 to go after the one the one lost and strained sheep to bring it home. And in fact, as we saw two weeks ago, this is precisely what God calls us to do in the lives of each other. See, if we see somebody wandering, we go after them. That's what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is all about. And sadly, this is probably one of the most neglected passages that Christians are supposed to do in the church in the entire New Testament. It just doesn't happen especially in Minnesota culture, this passive-aggressive Minnesota nice sort of thing. We just don't do it, and we're supposed to. We're supposed to go after that one lost and strained sheep in order to bring them home when they wander. And so are you seeing here why uh, you know, Matthew 18, 15 through 20 needs to be taught in its context of the entire chapter? Right? See, so often what we do is we pull these passages out of their larger context and kind of make them into fortune cookies and, you know, hey, be like a child, you know, bring little children to Jesus, you know, all these sort of things. But the whole chapter is really connecting to what it means to be a child of God and how we need to go after wandering sheep who are the children of God. And so if we don't connect this to the larger context, we will miss the point. And the point Jesus is making in these five verses is that we are to be kingdom rescuers. Don't be a bystander. Don't sit there passively by and assume somebody else will do what you've been called to do. When you see a sheep wander off, leave the 99, go after them. Because that's the heart of the Father. And we see that in verse 14. Look what it says in verse 14. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 18, but look in verse 14. It says, So it is not the will of my Father who who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so if we're going to be kingdom rescuers, we gotta act, we gotta go. 
We can't stand there idly thinking, oh, you know what, somebody else is going to take care of it. That's the pastor's job. That's what we pay him for. Uh, and you know what? Even if I did go, I, I don't know spiritual CPR. I don't even know how to deal with it, right? I just, I just make a mess of things, and I really don't like spiritual blood. It kind of freaks me out. I don't know what I do or say. But here's the thing. Jesus tells us exactly what to do and say. He tells us in verse 15. Look at it with me. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. These five verses that we're looking at this morning describe for us the process of what is called church discipline. Okay? Not a popular term. Or it also is called excommunication. That's the end result of it. Uh, but it's the process of church discipline. And the first step of this process is to individually go to the person who sinned against you and confront them. If you are the one who saw the sin, right, you're the one who needs to go. That's what this verse is saying. And this verse gives us a three-step process for doing this. Here's what the steps are. Go always, go in humility, and go directly. The first point here is go always because we always have to go. Pretty deep stuff, right? It's pretty straightforward, actually. But sadly, it's not often for us because we often just miss this point entirely. We often treat this verse as if we should only go in cases of super-duper big-time sins. But is that what this verse is saying? No, it's not. It says, if they sin, go. And that word for sin means all sins, not just the big ones. I like how one preacher I listened to this last week, he, he put it in a really interesting way I really liked. He said, we often look at this first step as if it's a in case of emergency break glass sort of thing, right? That's not what it is. This isn't like a two key turn solution like you're launching a nuclear bomb. No, this is a common every place thing that should be happening, I would venture to say even weekly, if not daily within the life of a church. And why is that? Because I don't know about you, but I sin daily. And I think you all do too. And we need each other to come along and offer these gracious, loving rebukes to help us return from wandering. Every single one of us, as we sang a couple weeks ago, is prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We're all dumb sheep, and sheep are dumb animals, and we're dumb just like sheep. Don't make any mistake about it. And a lot of the time, the thing is, as dumb sheep, we don't even know we're wandering when we're wandering. Like, you think of a sheep, when they wander, are they like, oh, you know, this seems like I'm just going to go over here and go for No, they don't have a clue. All of a sudden, they look up, and they're like, I don't know where I'm at, and now I'm uh, falling into a cliff. You know what I mean? Off a cliff. Like, they just, they don't have a clue. And so when we see another sheep wandering, we must go, and we must go always. Maybe you think, okay, yes, I'm supposed to go, but, you know, I just haven't found the right opportunity these past 36 months. I'm praying about it. You know, I'm just asking God to show me, you know, hopefully within the next two years, I'll find that opportunity, and then I'll go. Just waiting on God's time. Anybody ever made that excuse before? I have. This text was a kick in the teeth for me a little bit. Uh, But we all make that excuse. And, but the thing here is, is I can tell you right now when the right time was to go, and it was that 36 months ago. It's go always. Go now. Go to them directly. And I can say this because Jesus says this, and he said it back in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, and he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar, and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Now, maybe you don't need to go the very second it happens, but I'd venture to say you probably should get it done before the next communion service, don't you think? <laughs> Just going to throw that out there. All right? But at the same time, this absolutely goes both ways. All right? When your brother has sinned against you or when you've sinned against your brother, go and reconcile. Get that thing taken care of. Now, at the same time, don't get me wrong. Proverbs tells us it's not just what we say, but how we say it. But there's another part to that. And what is it? When we say it. Okay? Like if somebody's walking down the aisle and they just got married, it's probably a really bad time to run up to them and say, hey, I need to talk to you about, to you about your anger issue. Right? Don't do it then. It's a stupid, dumb time to do it. It's a foolish time to do it. Right? Find a good time to do it. But at the same time, don't use that as an excuse to wait 36 months to go. Go as soon as it is realistically possible. Otherwise, the fact is, you yourself will be in disobedience to the Lord's command here. And so we must go always. Secondly, we must go how? We must go in humility. Where do I find that in this passage? Uh, Two places. Well, for starters, not only has that been the entire theme throughout this chapter as the prerequisite for even being a Christian, for being a child of God, is humility. But also, as this verse tells us, what kind of person are we going to? We're going to a brother. We're going to a sister in Christ. See, when we go to this person, we're not going as their Lord or their master or their teacher, where we're coming along and be like, come here, young Pato, and I will tell you how this works. You're so naive, you know? That's not how we do this. We go with fear and with trembling, not with a superior, self-righteous, critical spirit. Instead, we go in humility, recognizing the fact that we are all sinners Saved by God's grace. Sure, maybe we don't struggle with that particular type of wandering that they struggle with, but I venture to say they probably don't struggle with the types of wanderings that we face. And so before you go, you need to have a, have a reality check and stop and say, hey, you know what? I'm a sinner saved by grace just like they are. And the other thing we need to remember in this humility is that the sin isn't against us, is it? Not first most. Who's it against? The Lord. And so what we're really trying to do is reconcile them back to the Lord, to bring them back into the sheepfold. And so if we go without humility, we will go with a self-righteous, critical spirit. And if you think about that, when we do so, that's really kind of a way of usurping God's throne. We're stepping on the throne and being judge and juror, aren't we? We're not supposed to do that. Only God sits on God's throne. Right? There's not a, a little seat next to it for anybody else. It's his throne. Have you ever tried to do this process before without humility? To go and you know, offer some kind of rebuke or correction to somebody, and you did so maybe with you know, kind of self-righteous pride. Um, but I'm just going to throw out a wild guess here. Uh, I'm guessing your spouse probably didn't like it so much, did they? <laughs> I'm guessing your coworker or friend didn't uh, hug you afterwards and thank you for doing and saying the hard thing. And I bet your kids, if you ask them, they probably don't like it too much either. Uh, that's kind of convicting. But uh, that's because, as Proverbs says, a soft answer turneth away wrath, which simply means if you talk to people like a jerk, don't expect anything other than a jerk response. Right? They're still accountable for their sin, don't get me wrong, but we're being a stumbling block for them for their sin, aren't we? Absolutely we are. And so we must go with humility. Go asking questions. 
Don't come in there all Storm and Norman, ready to just blast them, waving around your accusations with your finger. Don't do that. If anyone here is named Norman, I apologize. Uh, but don't ask leading questions either, right? Like these passive aggressives, like, so when did you stop beating your wife? Wait, what? No, I, I don't beat my wife. What are you doing? What are you talking about? Right? Like, don't ask leading questions. People see right through that stuff. Don't do it. And if you do ask leading questions and they see through it, their defenses are going to go right up. So it's not going to be an effective tool or means of approaching them. Go with sincerity and love. And hear me when I say this. Go to find out the truth instead of point out the truth. You see the difference there? Go to find out the truth instead of point out the truth. Because how many times have we gone to someone doing this process, uh, someone that we thought sinned against us, only to find out, oops, our assumptions of what we thought they meant and actually said are entirely wrong? Anybody had that happen before? All the time. And yet, for some reason, we are all naturally inclined to continue thinking that we are personality and behavioral experts who have a God's eye view upon people's motives and intentions. Did you see how they talked to me? Okay, I know what they meant. When I asked them what they did all week, and they said not much, what they really meant was I'm not much, and they don't want to talk to me. (laughs) Sillier things than that have happened in my office. (laughs) Um, And I'm sure you heard it as well. And then the next sentence you often hear or maybe thought is, I don't know, they're so rude, maybe we should excommunicate them. Uh, We jump right to the big guns, don't we? Uh, Our natural tendency is to think that we have a God's eye view upon everyone else's thoughts and intentions. But you want to know something? We don't. Our assumptions are often and wrong a whole lot more often than we think. In fact, I'd venture to say probably most of the time. But you know what? When we go to somebody with these wrong assumptions, we cause them to stumble. When we go with accusations, we're throwing stumbling blocks right before them. And so when we go to confront our brother or sister in Christ for what we believe or what we perceive to be sin, we got to go with humility. we got to go understanding that we don't have all the facts. And we very well might hear something that totally changes the perspective of what we thought. I was uh, reading a couple weeks ago. I'm actually going to save this for opening sermon illustration, but whatever. Uh, There's a little kid, and uh, he was sitting there with his dad, and they were looking at the railroad tracks. They were standing on it, looking at how far it went down just for miles and miles and miles. And the kid said, Dad, look how the railroad tracks finally come together. The dad says, no, son, it just looks like they do. They don't actually come together. The kid went home. He said, Mom, Dad's a liar. I saw they came together, and he told me they don't. Right? Our perception becomes our reality sometimes if we don't stop and check our assumptions. And the same thing happens when it comes to Matthew 18 here and going to a brother and sister in Christ that we perceive to have sinned. One more thing here. Because of this humility thing, we don't go to them on the mere suspicion of pride. Right? We don't go and say, hmm, there's probably a 50% chance they didn't mean that snarky, but there might be. 50% chance they did. I'm going to go find out. Uh, no, don't do that, right? Don't go on the mere suspicion of pride. Go when you believe it's clear that there was sin or almost certainly was sin. And the proof text I would give you for that is 1 Corinthians 13, which says that love, which we must have for one another, does what? It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
which simply means love gives the benefit of the doubt. A loving person doesn't go around thinking they have the spiritual gift of rebuke. Because I can about guarantee you that if you think you have that gift, you don't. And you're probably just an annoying stumbling block for most people. So knock it off. (laughs) Steps for going, we must go always. We must go with humility. And third, we must go directly. Uh, Just two quick things about this point, but here they are. Go yourself and go face-to-face. Does verse 15 say, go and tell your spouse what the person did? Does it say, go tell your spouse what's going on first before you go tell your brother what the rebuke is? It doesn't, does it? Does it say, go and tell your friend first before you go and confront this person for their sin? It doesn't, does it? And yet, how often uh, do we treat either friends or especially probably more likely our spouses as if they are immune to this instruction? It's almost like we think once we come to, like, we're one, you know, Become one flesh, like it's okay to to gossip to each other, but not everybody else. No, it's still gossip. So often we go home and gossip to our spouse, slandering this person, bringing their reputation down before our spouse on what we perceive to be sin without actually knowing if it truly was. What we are supposed to do is zip the lip and go to that person directly. Verse 15 says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And calling it a prayer request doesn't make it not gossip for the record. It's still gossip. And you know what? This also means don't come and tell your pastor the person's fault either. Because if you haven't talked to that person first about it, I have no business whatsoever hearing about it. Now, what if you have a situation where you honestly don't know if you're overreacting, if you're misreading things, and you need good, wise counsel? Does that ever happen? All the time. All the time. Does this mean it's wrong to get advice then? No. But tell me this. Is it possible, more often than not, to get that advice without sharing names? And yet, how often do we share the names? Quite often. Uh, So it's quite often, it is is usually, I would say, a situation where we can share and get advice without without giving that person's name. Not always, but if we are truly trying to protect that person's reputation, we should be able to get advice without needing to share their name or all the details that basically give it away. So for instance, if you go for advice and you say, so I've got this problem with someone I'm married to, I'm not going to say their name because I don't want to slander them, like... You haven't covered your bases here, okay? It's just, just checking a box here and it doesn't cut it. And how many times do we do that? All the time. At the same time, though, if you have gone to that person and it didn't go anywhere, does that mean you just, oh, I tried, I did my job, and just walk away? Is that how it works? No. At that point, you go and find one or two others. And when you do, you go to them and you tell them what's going on. And that's not gossip. That's obedience to Christ's command here. And so then you must bring it to phase two, which we'll get to in a moment here, and that does involve other people. Now, think about this. Why do you think Jesus requires all this? Well, for one, it's because he knows that hearing the juicy details about another believer's fault is miracle grow for our pride. It is. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you hear it, it's like, oh, man, I didn't think I, you know, I must not be that bad after all. You know, hearing about so-and-so, I've never done that. You know, like that's how we get. 
And so Jesus wants to help prevent that. He wants us to be humble, which, as we saw, is the opening part of this chapter. And secondly, he wants to minimize the damage to that person's reputation as much as possible, which is actually quite a loving thing to do, if you think about it. And so you must go individually to the person, not to the pastor, not to the deacons, not even to your spouse. Go to them directly. And secondly, go face-to-face. Now, I don't have a chapter and verse for saying that texting or email is always wrong, and you should just never do it, but just don't do it, all right? Like, it's, it's a bad idea, all right? Uh, don't do it unless you have no other way. Go face-to-face. And you think about this just in terms of practical wisdom. Do you realize how much communication involves reading a person's facial expression, reading their body language, talking to them, and reading and saying, oh, you're... They don't, I don't think they're getting this. They, they, they're you know, getting all tensed up here. Maybe I'm not communicating clearly. And then you can you know, kind of readjust, maybe ask more questions. But you can't do that via text very well, can you? And I don't care how many emoticons you use, it's not going to cover facial expression. You can winky-wink all day long on it. It's not going to work. <laughs> not only that, have you ever gone back and read an old email that you sent about a particular conflict And then you read it and you thought, who's the idiot who wrote this? (laughs) I have. Uh, When I was doing security, I remember we had a little, it wasn't even a big conflict, it was just something minor. And I emailed the guy who was the shift lead for the other shift. And I just said, hey, by the way, could you guys, you know, look after this and take care of this during your shift? Because when we get here, it's just, it's kind of a lot. And he took it as if I insulted his mother. And then we went back and forth with emails. And you know what's really annoying is I found these emails actually like a year or two ago, and I looked at those. I was like, what an idiot. (laughs) What a total fool. Because, not him, me. Because at the time, I thought this was like, this was like Shakespeare-level crafting of sentences, and it was just awful, you know? And how often do we do that? We think we're just so well-worded and articulate, and then your spouse comes in, and they look at it, and they're like, what are you thinking? (laughs) Don't do text, all right? Go face-to-face unless you absolutely can't. Third, go directly. And if they listen, which means if they turn and repent and accept your rebuke, then what do you do? Make them grovel? Make them earn back the relationship with you? No. We're going to get to this next week. What do you do? You forgive them. You forgive and forget. You move on. How many times? Seven times seven. You keep doing it. doesn't matter because that's the same thing our Father does for us when we sin against him. And so when they repent, we celebrate with them because we've brought that wandering sheep home. We celebrate because the church discipline process here only had to go to step one and praise God, that's all that was needed. And so what do we do? We slay the fatted calf. We bring them out to Raffrey's. We get some pizza, right? Whatever. You can do tasty pizza north too. That one's pretty good. But you get the idea here. You're celebrating because you won your brother back. Your sister has returned home. And so praise God. They're reconciled to you and to Jesus. But if they don't listen to you, if they don't repent then sadly, it is time to escalate things to phase two of this process. And so to be kingdom rescuers, we must first go. Secondly, we must persist. Look at verse 18 with me. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Okay, so this step isn't to bully them, right? It's not to humiliate them before, you know, maybe their mom or their best friend or anything like that. No, that's not what this is about. It's simply to add some persuasive force to the conversation. The idea here is is that if they are unwilling to listen to the one person, they might be convinced by the others, by the two or three witnesses. And that phrasing that Jesus uses there is actually a quote back to the book of Deuteronomy, where those witnesses, if it was a serious enough sin, would be the first ones to pick up those stones and start chucking at them. Now, thankfully, we don't do that in the church age, right? Like, that sounds awful. But that's the way it worked back then. That's what Jesus is referring to here back in Deuteronomy. The goal here is not only to convince the person of their sin and need to repent, but another thing is it's also to ensure that the accusation is actually reliable and true. And this point is true throughout the entire New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 13.1, it says, every charge must be established by the evidence of what? Two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy stuff again, right? Uh, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul instructs that the church should not even entertain an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. And there's a lot of reasons for this. We don't have time to get into all of it today, but the idea here is that we don't believe all accusers across the board because sometimes accusers are liars. Sometimes they get it wrong. They're not lying, but they're just confused. They misunderstood. And so if step one fails, we bring one or two others in to help us resolve the problem. Yeah, we take the accusation seriously. We don't just say, oh, it's just your opinion. You just saw that, whatever. No, we look into it. We bring in two or three witnesses, and then we deal with the situation. Do you see here then why the church is so important? Do you see why this idea of lone wolf Christianity is a really bad idea? The reality is not only do you need the church, but the church needs you. And why? Because every single one of us has blind spots that we don't see. And that's why we have a membership covenant here at this church. We are agreeing to help point out each other's blind spots. We are covenanting together to say, these are the sheep we are responsible, and the ones over there, that's somebody else's responsibility. Because here's the fact, I can't be responsible for every Christian in the entire Brainerd Lakes area, and neither can you. And so that's what our membership is here as a church. It's a covenant to agree together to say, I will point out stumbling blocks in your life, you point them out in mine, and together we will run this race for the glory of God and the good of one another. Blind spots, what are you you talking about blind spots? I've never seen any of those in my life. That's why they're called blind spots. You're not going to see them. See, the thing is, is you probably see my blind spots pretty clearly, and if you don't think I have them, just hang around for a little while or ask some of the people, well, maybe don't do that because it'll be gossip, but hang around for a little while and you'll see them. And the reason is I don't see mine as clearly as you see them. And that goes in reverse. You don't see your blind spots as clearly as we all do. This is why the author of Hebrews says to exhort one another every day in what kind of a scenario? As long as it's called today. <laughs> I mean, that's a kind of a funny way to put it. It's like, if it's called today, do this. Don't wait 36 months. If it's called today, get on it. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or we could say so that none of you might trip up because of the blind spots in your life. 
And this exhorting is necessary because on our own, we can easily become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so when one of us is caught up in sin, any sin, we need one another to come to the rescue. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. However, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, when you go to try to restore another believer, there's, there's a very real temptation that that sin they're in might pull you into it as well. That's what Galatians is telling us here. And so once again here, if this restoring works, then what does it mean? We celebrate. But this time, we just have to order a few extra pizzas because we got those two or three witnesses with us, okay? But if it doesn't, then it means it's time to go on to the final step. And that final step is bringing the entire church in to not only up the ante by bringing in the church's full persuasive force, but this is also done to protect the church, which leads us to our final point. To be kingdom rescuers, we must go, we must persist, and finally, we must protect. Look at verses 17 through 20 here with me, if you would. But if he refuses to listen to the church, but if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. As you can see, when it comes to church discipline, this is a three strikes and you're out sort of situation. But only when it comes to that one unrepentant sin. Okay, It's not like... It happens on Tuesday with this sin, and you get to step two and you repent. And then on Wednesday, it happens with a different sin, you get to step one and you repent. And then it's like, nope, no steps for you. You're gone. It's not how it works. This is any individual unrepentant sin. And once you repent of that sin, the, the slate is wiped clean and the whole thing starts over again. It's a fresh start. And praise God for that. Because we all would be excommunicated if not. If it gets to level three, where a person refuses to repent of that sin, if they refuse all the hands that are reaching out to offer that rescue attempt, this text tells us, Jesus tells us, you bring it before the church. The church then publicly calls them out to repent. And if they don't, what do we do? We treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector, which simply means we treat them as if they were unclean. We treat them as if they are an unbeliever. And we do that because it's, that's exactly what they're acting like. That's exactly what they're acting like. This is basically saying, you know what? You want to act like an unbeliever? We're going to treat you like an unbeliever. We're not going to pull you into the fellowship. We're not going to allow you to teach Sunday school. We're not going to allow you to be on the worship team. We're not going to do that because we, don't, we only allow believers to do that. And by your unrepentance, you're showing us some strong evidence that you're not truly a believer. This doesn't mean the person's not saved for sure, for certainly, for sure. It simply means that based upon their current behavior, we cannot say with certainty that they are a true follower of Christ. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But either way, the church isn't messing around with it, and why? Well, part of that reason is because we got other people to protect. 
And yeah, that absolutely includes you, but it also includes everyone else here. Certainly we want to protect the wandering sheep, but we got to, if that sheep's not going to come home, it's not going to clean itself up and get and repent and turn from that sin. We got to protect everybody else here from sin. Why and how so? Because sin spreads like gangrene. Paul tells us this several times in the New Testament. It spreads like lice in a kindergarten class on hat day. And so what a loving teacher does is they don't just say, oh, Billy, you know, Try not to share your hat too much with people. They say, Billy, you're going home, all right? You're going to go home. You're going to get this thing cleaned up because we don't want that spreading to all the other children. So it's a loving, protective thing to do. It's not because you hate the kid. It's actually because you want to protect all the other kids. And so too is it with the church. The Bible tells us that sin spreads like leaven within bread, which means it seeps through the entire loaf, and it does. If you've done any baking at all, which I haven't, you know that it does this. And because of that, then, we must remove unrepentant sinners from the church in order to protect the church. And all throughout the Bible, we find this principle. We find it in in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the reason the man is blessed who does not hang around with willful, unrepentant sinners is because not being around them is a form of protection from them not becoming the same thing. You are who you hang out with. Teens especially hear this. You are who you hang out with. We like to think that we're the captain of the ship. We like to think I'm the master of my destiny. I'm going to be who I want. No. You want who you be? You're going to be how your friends are. And so... You can't decide fully who you're going to be, but you can decide who you're going to hang out with, which that then decides who you're going to be. And that's what Psalm 1 is telling us. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says this, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so for those who persist in sin, after step 1, step 2, and step 3 process have been completed and they refuse to repent, we must cast them out from the church, which means we excommunicate them from the church, not because... We are prideful, not because we hate them, but actually because we love them and we love the church. And for the record, it doesn't matter what kind of sin this is. If somebody blows up on somebody over cookies, if somebody blows up on somebody over, you know, parking spots, it don't matter. If it's any kind of sin, this process is commanded by Lord and King Jesus to be initiated, to be activated to deal with that sin. Because if it's not, that leaven's going to leaven the whole dough. That absolutely includes divisiveness, for example. Romans 16, 17 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Titus 3, 10 through 11, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or Christian, you could say, if he is guilty of sexual immorality. That doesn't mean in their past. That means actively living in it unrepentantly. Or somebody who is greedy, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside the church. So purge then the evil person from among you. 
You're not going to find that in a lot of like church growth books. They're just not going to be in there. One of the biggest reasons this final step of church discipline is done is to protect the church. But at the same time, it's not just about protecting the church. It's also about being loving and redemptive towards that wandering sheep. It's still, even in this excommunication process, isn't, isn't writing them off and you know washing our hands like pilot of them. No, it's actually redemptive, trying to bring them back into the fold. It's about cutting them off from the fellowship of the body so that if they are a true believer in Christ, they will feel the pain and isolation of not being connected to the body. I mean, think about it. You cut off a finger. Sometimes they can sew that thing back on, right? But if you let that thing sit for about two weeks, it's not going back on. It's not going to be very long where that finger withers away. Now, in our day and age, the truth is this process is probably much less effective than it was back in the early church, and for that, we can thank modern transportation. Because nowadays, if you even hit the step two process, sometimes even the step one process, we've got a bunch of infantile Christians who throw tantrums, and they take their ball and leave, and they drive down to the next church down the road where they can continue in their sin without anybody saying boo to them about it. And to be honest... You know, this is concerning, but there's not a whole lot we can really do about this in this day and age. Yes, as the pastor, when new people come into this church, if they're coming from a faithful Bible-preaching church, I certainly try to connect with their previous pastor and just give them a call and say, hey, so-and-so is here. Are they under church discipline? Any problems? What's going on? And they say, nope, we see this doctrine different. We, we, agree, we, we left on good terms. We parted ways in peace. God bless them. I say, thank you. God bless you too. We'll try to care for their souls. But... Sometimes, the truth is, my hands are completely tied when it comes to this. However, there are things that we can still do as a church to make this process more effective. And think about this. One of the things that we can surely do to make this more effective is to treat our church as an organism, not as an organization. See, if you just show up on Sunday mornings and you come in and you, and you hear preaching, you hear music, and then you leave and you're gone, that's the, that's the deepest connection you have to the church. Is it easier to do that if somebody calls out your sin? Of course it is. It's way easier to pack up and just head down the road in your car. It's much more easier. And so if we're going to be a functioning and healthy church, we need to make this more of an organism, not an organization. We need to make sure that this church is functioning more as a family with personal relationships that will be deeply and greatly missed if somebody decides, sadly, to do something like that. Because if our church is doing everything we've been learning about in our Building Up One Another class, shameless plug, if we've been loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another, that person who runs off when step two, step one or even step three happens, they're going to feel the pain of that separation. And hopefully so, much pain, that it brings them home again in repentance to their church family. And so the goal here is not only protective, but it's also redemptive. But there's also another element here we need to consider. The goal is also doxological. Doxo what? Okay, that simply means worship. It's about worshiping the Lord. Because another reason we practice this church discipline all the way to the end, even with tears, even in sadness and great suffering and pain from the loss of our brother and sister in Christ, is because we want to worship our Lord rightly and bring glory to the name of King Jesus. There's nothing more slanderous 
to Jesus' name than carnal, sin-loving Christians. And yet, how often do we see that? Christians who are sometimes deacons in churches, Bible-preaching churches, who cuss like sailors out on the job, and everybody finds out, you're a Christian? Are you serious? Wow, they let anybody in there. (laughs) It is said that Mahatma Mahatma Gandhi once said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians, for your Christians are so unlike your Christ. What a sad testimony of the church. Church, we stand before the eyes of an unbelieving world who is watching. They might not act like they're watching, but make no mistake, they are watching. They are watching to see if Christianity is as true as we say it is, if it's as powerful as we say it is, if it's as life-changing as we tell them that it is. And so one of the greatest testimonies to our faith are the lives of faithful believers who, yes, they are still sinners, but by God's grace, the righteous man falls and gets back up seven times and continues to do so throughout their entire life. And so if our lives are lived no differently than the world's, why then should the world think that our God is any different than the rest of the gods out there? And so this is why we must take sin seriously. Not because we're self-righteous legalists, not because we think we're better than everybody else, not because we think this is an elitist club for only the Navy SEAL type Christian. No, it's because of the honor of our Savior's name, who is the name above all names. In verses 18 through 20, we find some verses that sound an awful lot like what Jesus said to Peter back in chapter 16, and we see him talking here about that binding and loosing thing again. And just like back in chapter 16, I don't have a lot of time to explain this again, so if you want the fuller explanation, go back to that sermon. But just like in chapter 16, the binding and loosing is in the passive tense here, which means it would be better translated like the New American Standard does, which says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, which implies it has already been. It's not like we're acting and then heaven's like, oh, they did that. We better get on board with this. No, we're getting on board with what heaven has already declared is what this is talking about here. It simply means that as we act in accordance to what Jesus commands us to do here in the process of church discipline, so long as we are faithful to God's word, we are enacting heaven's commands. We have the Lord of hosts behind our actions nodding in approval. And this passage goes on to talk about prayer, and I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but this isn't just, you know, sometimes they say, well, two or more are gathered, that's church. No, that has nothing to do with this text at all. It's talking about church discipline. It's talking about excommunication. It's not talking about, you know, you and two others doing church out the cat. That's not, I mean, get together, worship, do all you can, but that's not church. Okay, it's not what this text is saying. This text is pointing out that this process must be bathed in prayer. And these three verses then are all about the church's authority acting with heaven's authority, and that's why prayer is so vitally important. Yes, we must go to God's word to make sure that what we are doing is authorized by our king, but we also must spend time in prayer. And so every step of this process must be done with prayer. And we must do all of these actions, not based upon man's authority, but based upon God's authority. If I ever command you to do something as the pastor, contrary to God's word, don't listen to it. But at the same time, don't be readily and quick to dismiss it as just Zach's thoughts. Hebrews 13 says to Christians, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
It's not because leaders have carte blanche for whatever they do and say. They certainly do not, and there's too much of that in this day and age. It's that biblically faithful leaders, when they go through this church discipline process, are binding and loosing on earth what heaven has decreed and declared. And you don't want to go against that, do you? Absolutely not. None of us do. And this applies to myself just as much as it does you. Verse 19 and 20 aren't talking about prayer services. Not really. They are talking about seeking heaven's will as we enact it upon earth. And so that prayer process is, as we said, a vital step for every point of this, of this process. For without prayer, we might as well give up on this entirely. Without prayer, we have no hope of success because we're going without the power of God. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts, not my clever, cr- cleverly crafted sentences. It's the word of God being used by the Spirit in my words as I go to them. And so I need to go with prayer. And if I go with prayer and the truth that is in God's word, we can be confident that our Lord is with us. He's with us, approving our godly actions on earth with all of heaven's authority. Isn't that remarkable? The omnipresence of Christ, he is with us as we do this. Finally, why do we do this, ultimately? Especially in a day and age when you've got to look pretty hard to find churches who would even consider doing this. Why do we go? Why do we persist? And why do we protect? Because that's precisely what Christ did for us. Christ's mission was to go to the earth. And he fulfilled it by coming into this world to save sinners who were wandering from God. This was a mission he refused to give up on, and he persisted in it so much so that he went all the way to the cross where he died a brutal and horrific death under the wrath of Almighty God. And he did this, why? For his glory and to protect the sons and daughters that he loved so that they might one day come home as prodigal children who can celebrate with their heavenly Father in the feast that he has prepared for them. And so now then, He calls us to do what he's already done for us, to go out and bring the wandering sheep back into the fold. Don't stand idly by. Don't be a bystander thinking this is somebody else's job. You know, that's that's for the pastors, the deacons. No, go and persistently urge them to take their eyes off of their sin and put them back onto the Savior who alone can heal them and satisfy their desires. We have a big job to do here, church a vastly important job to do here, a crucial job. But praise God, we have a big and powerful God who's given us all the power we need and more to carry out this rescue mission. And so may we as a church be faithful to our mission to go and rescue lost and strained sinners and by God's grace, bring them back into the fold. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to do these things. Lord, this is so hard, especially in our day and age, especially in a culture where even unchurched people know the verse, do not judge. And yet that's all they know. They don't know the rest of that context, which is not to not judge, but is is to judge righteous judgment. Not man's judgment, but God's, God's judgment. And so, Father, we just ask that you would help us to remember this, to not shy back, to not have a fear of man, when we should have a fear of our God who sits upon the throne of heaven.
And so help us out of our fear and our love for you to do these things. Help us to also do it out of love for one another. For when we see another brother and sister in Christ hurting because of their sin, wandering away from the fold, it should grieve us. For if we care about them, that's exactly how we will feel. Lord, help us to do these things. Help us to be found faithful when you return. Bless our church. Make us strong by your power and your grace and your mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, which is what we're actually trying to get people to do when we do this process.